Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from past audiobooks and other spoken word projects. You writers may also be given the chance to have your newly written material, fiction or nonfiction, read to an audience. This show will get the words out. And now, here's the host of Tom Reads Your Story, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Thank you very much, Mr. Announcer, for that wonderful introduction. I look forward to your glorious voice twice a week. Thank you very much for doing that. And and for very little money, too. Really. It's, it's just something that I am thankful for every day. You do a great job at it. And, uh, well, I won't say any more. Thanks very much for coming, everyone. Uh, welcome to you voice actors, writers of all kinds and audiobook listeners. We are celebrating the spoken word, and this is Tom Reads Your Story. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. So today, we have a couple of good things. Um, first of all, we're going to hear from uh, a very good little story that I auditioned for, uh, I think, Oh, gosh, at least a year or two, or probably two years ago. And uh, it's something I didn't end up doing, but uh, it's it's really nice. It's just, it's about a dog's life, basically. And, uh, and my voice is narrating as the dog. And that's about all I can say about it. I didn't read the whole book, obviously, because... You know, it was an audition, and when you have an audition, you you read a few lines out of context, and that's pretty much it. Um, but you'll like this, and um, I'll be playing it in just a moment. Be right back. What a perplexing dilemma. Having to choose a collection of Witchman chocolates, beautifully sculptured pieces made of delectable milk or dark chocolate, Oh, and those fillings. Strawberry, buttercream, and hazelnut pate. But don't worry when you're choosing. Just take your own sweet time. Is a, a short story that I had tried out for uh, some time ago. It's called Risk It for a Biscuit. Now, what this means is it's a story about a dog. Okay, that's pretty much all that needs to be said. The narrator is the dog. He doesn't sound like a dog or dog like that. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He talks like a normal human being. Um, I don't remember the author's name of this uh, because it was a while back and I left it in a folder that I don't normally look at. So... um, We'll play this um, uh, this little story, and um, and then we'll be we'll be back for more. This is risk it for a biscuit. I went to my new home, which was called Hobland House, when I was just seven weeks old, wrapped up in a stupid fluffy pink blanket. Once indoors, they put me on the floor for me to sniff around. 
Being an inquisitive and a naturally happy puppy, I was sniffing this and that when an angry voice shouted out, Biscuit! Leave it alone! Honestly, all I was doing was pulling at the tassels on their red rug. What are they getting so cross about? Hang on. Did they call me Biscuit? At least I have a name now. That was something that I did not have before. In fact, I have a funny feeling, even though I have just arrived, that it will be good fun living here. Biscuit, they called me. That's quite a nice name. I like it. But this could be confusing if I was offered an actual real chewy biscuit. Perhaps we should come to that problem as it arises, because it might never happen as I might never ever be offered one. Now then, little one, I heard a stern voice speaking to me and felt a pair of firm hands lifting me up gently. The gentleman then sat on a chair and put me on his lap, then started to fondle my ears and fur. I liked that. Perhaps this was indeed going to be a good home. You like a cuddle, do you, little lady? Well, you will get lots if you are good. But I must tell you that this is a rather posh home for a puppy like yourself to be living in. It is called Hobland House, which really is an extremely smart name, and you are very lucky to be here. You should have gone to my sister's, but as she has broken one leg and her right arm amongst other things, there was nothing for me to do but to offer to keep you instead. I heard a rustle of paper as though the gentleman was trying to read his newspaper as well as cuddling me. But as usual, I was wrong. I can see from your pedigree form that you are a golden Labrador, a cream Labrador. He looked at me rather suspiciously, then turned to look at the lady sitting in the opposite chair. She doesn't really look like cream to me, does she, dear? He looked to her for an answer, which seemed a long time in coming. The lady spoke quietly. She looks a dirty light brown to me, and she has a dirty mark all down her side. And she appears to smell slightly. Her nose wrinkled in disgust. I looked slyly away. Little did she know that I had rolled in something rather nasty that very morning. My mouth rolled into a happy grin at the thought of it and things to come. I heard the rustle of paper again. The gentleman, my master, started to speak again. She comes from a good line of breeding and has some brilliantly named ancestors. He broke off suddenly and his voice softened. You must admit she is pretty, isn't she? He looked at the lady again, who just nodded her head and smiled sweetly. I wish I knew their names. They know mine, but I don't know theirs. I shall just have to mention them as mother and father if they are going to be secretive like that. Perhaps they will tell me in time. I felt hot. Evidently so did father as he put me back down on the floor to explore. He then took off what I think were his socks as they smelt a bit high to me. He neatly laid them on the floor by his shoes. They looked nice and they smelt of him. When I was sure that no one was looking, I pinched the sock and shoe and hid them under the table and shut my eyes for a few minutes just to get my energy back. After a few minutes, I felt bored and wondered what the socks tasted like. I was hungry. I chewed a very tiny hole in the sock, but it tasted awful, so awful that it made me choke. Mother and father were busy talking, so luckily they did not hear me. I then looked again at the shoe. It did look rather tasty and smelt of leather a bit like my chewy hide bones that I had been given at the odd times to keep me quiet. I nibbled at the shoe, gently at first, then chewed it harder. It was good. 
so good that it made me dribble. I must have dribbled quite a lot as it started to run into the shoe and make a little puddle inside it. As I chewed harder and the puddle grew bigger and bigger until, oh dear, were they shouting at me again? Surely not. I looked hastily around and quickly hung my head. Father was heading straight my way. Could I vanish? Could I hide? Too late. I was picked up none too gently. Risk it for a biscuit. I hope you like that. I, I liked it very much. And you know, the, the thing of it is, you put these things away and you forget that you had recorded them. And then you listen to them several years later. And it's like, wow, that's not bad. I mean, it's actually pretty freaking good. Uh, and I, well, I liked it. I hope you did. Anyway, getting back to the agenda, we have today a book by John Isaac Jones. Now, as I've said before, John Isaac Jones uh, is a Florida author. Uh, he's written for newspapers and magazines and uh, has a number of things on audible.com, uh, meaning audiobooks. And this book is what I would call, and I think what most people would call kind of twisted, kind of twisted, kind of dark comedy. Uh, he doesn't always write dark comedy, although once in a while he does, and when he does, it's pretty decent. Um, this is called Blood on the Salad. Now, anyone who has worked in a restaurant. Now, I have not. I'm I'm not a restaurant worker. I haven't worked in a kitchen. But uh, I think pretty much anyone who has can safely say that it can get pretty crazy. I mean, nuts. And tensions uh, overflow and people argue and there's people walking out, out of the job and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it can get crazy. Because it's very busy usually in a restaurant, uh, if it's a you know popular place anyway. Uh, so this is kind of about that, and it's by John Isaac Jones. This is Blood on the Salad by John Isaac Jones. Chapter Two: Me and My Press. The little hand-cranked press I used to print the menus was located in the stockroom. Giant barrels of flour and 50-gallon drums of cooking oil had been moved to make room for me and my little press on one of the lower shelves in the stockroom. The other trappings of my operation, a letter stand, a spindle for spelling words, as well as ink and paper, were scattered around the little press. It wasn't a bad job. The work paid $27 a week and included a free meal. Five days a week, I attended classes at Sydney Lanier High and came to work every afternoon to print the next day's menus. On Saturdays, I came in to print that day's and Sunday's dinner menus. It was a great after-school job for a 17-year-old like me. Although the hotel was billed as the ritziest stay in Montgomery, the kitchen was run on a shoestring. All of the hotel employees were paid less than minimum wage. Despite the lack of money, 
hotel management did everything in their power to produce an image of exclusivity and good taste. The napkins had to be folded just so. All the servers were required to wear crisp white uniforms, and all of the table linen was inspected by Mr. Horgan himself. For my part, I learned early on that the management was too cheap to buy more letters for my printing. Since E is the most frequently used letter in the alphabet, I feared seeing the word vegetable or beets on the menu because E's were as rare as hen's teeth. Once, when sauerkraut and frankfurters appeared on the menu, I didn't have any U's, so I spelled the word frankfurters. Frankfurters! Frankfurters! Mr. Horgan had said in shocked disbelief when he saw the proof. I understand you have a shortage of letters, but frankfurters? Of all the words you could have improvised, that's the worst. A word like that puts people off their food. If you don't have any use, then spell the word Frankforter. True, it is spelled incorrectly, but that is much more pleasant than Frankforter. Any time you have to improvise, remember, you must always keep the guest's palate in mind. So I sat down on the stool in front of the press and sat about the task of building the menu for the big banquet. As I worked, directly behind me, I could hear Doyle, the dishwasher, unloading the dishwashing machine. Doyle was a mid-sixties black man with a sunken face, slightly bent over, and always wore one of those little white paper hats that kitchen personnel used to prevent hair from falling into food. Doyle's job was to load and unload the dishwasher and keep the kitchen floor clean. After I had worked for some twenty minutes, Chlorine, the cakes and pies woman, waddled into the stockroom. Chlorine was a short, squat black woman in her late fifties with graying hair who always wore glasses and an apron. She never washed her hands, wiping them instead on her apron, then proceeded to the next task. When she entered the stockroom, she went straight to Doyle. Now I'm going to pull those pie racks out, she said and I want you to mop the floor back there. It ain't been mopped in a month. The old black man solemnly shook his head. Not my job, he replied. Well, you're going to make it your job, Chlorine said, pulling out the five pie racks, huge pastry racks on wheels, which contained yesterday's biscuits as well as 20 to 30 freshly baked apple, peach, cherry, and blueberry pies. That floor is filthy. Not my job. Doyle said again. Chlorine's face screwed up in anger. Now you gonna mop that floor, she said. If you don't, you ain't gonna have no manhoods. Do you hear me? Then, to prove her point, she reached into one of the racks and took out two hard day-old biscuits. You see these? Chlorine said, holding forth the two biscuits one at a time for Doyle to see. Number one, she said, holding up one biscuit. And number two, she said, holding up the other. If you don't mop that floor, this is what's going to happen to your manhoods. Then, holding the biscuits over a trash can, Chlorine slowly crushed them one at a time with her bare hand into a hundred smaller pieces. Doyle grimaced as he watched the crumpled pieces of old biscuit stream from her hand 
and into the waiting garbage can. Having made her point, Chlorine peered at Doyle. Now you understand me? she asked. Doyle, his nose in the air, shook his head defiantly. Tell you what, Chlorine said. I'm going back to the floor, and when I get back, this floor better be mopped. If it's not, your manhoods are going to be like them old biscuits. Then she turned and waddled out of the stockroom, back to the kitchen floor. Of the entire kitchen staff, there were only three white people, me, Mr. Horgan, and Mrs. Halifax, the one-armed woman. All of the others were black, and in the pecking order among them, Chlorine was at the top of the heap. Before she came to work in the kitchen, she had been employed as a housekeeper at the rich family mansion on Montgomery's exclusive south side for more than 20 years. In fact, she had been Mr. Rich's nanny when he was a young boy and a teenager and was considered part of the family. As a result, she had inside pull with the hotel owner that no one else had. If Mr. Rich needed a special job done, he would call on Chlorine. He trusted her and everything she did. Not even Johnny, the cross-eyed cook who was usually the de facto kitchen head when Mr. Horgan wasn't around, wouldn't cross swords with Chlorine. After he had hired Mr. Horgan for the kitchen manager's job some six months earlier, Mr. Rich had come back to the stockroom one afternoon and consulted Chlorine about his decision. What do you think about the new kitchen manager? He asked. Oh, he seems like a nice man, she said. Looks like he gets along with everybody. Do you think he's honest? Mr. Rich asked. Yeah, she replied. He talks a lot in that funny accent, but he seems to be fair with everybody. Mr. Rich pursed his lips. I'm not sure about him, he said thoughtfully. Something tells me I should have hired the Frenchman. Thirty minutes later, I had completed the day's build and printed off a proof of the day's menu. I read through it several times for errors and, finally satisfied it was optimal, I started out of the stockroom back to Mr. Horgan's desk with proof in hand. As always, he was on the phone, so I had to wait. As I waited, I turned my attention to Azalea to determine her progress on the salads. Now two of the three giant plastic tubs were filled with lettuce, tomatoes, radishes, onions, and cucumbers waiting to be tossed. By now, Azalea had washed and cut the tops of the carrots and was slicing them into small edible pieces. She was an artist with a knife. Once a carrot was taken from the bin and placed on the cutting surface, her hand was a blur as the carrot was instantly reduced to perfectly thin slices. I turned back to Mr. Horgan, but he was still on the phone, chatting away about the time he had served the Prince of Wales at some famous hotel in London. Damn, Azalea said suddenly. At the sound of the epithet, I turned to her. She had hit her thumb with the knife and sliced a small chunk of flesh out of the side. She grimaced, then grabbed the thumb with the other hand to staunch the bleeding. Then she turned to me. Jimmy, she said. 
Will you get that box of bandage strips out from under the sink? I knew she kept a small first aid kit under the sink for such occasions, so I got up, went to the sink, and retrieved the first aid kit. Upon opening it, I took out a box of adhesive strips. Now, I'm going to hold my thumb out, and I want you to put a bandage on it for me. As instructed, I took one of the strips, removed the paper covering, and while Azalea held her wounded thumb, I applied the bandage. Then she waited. As we watched, more blood oozed out from around the edges of the bandage. I'm going to need another one, she said. So, proffering the injured thumb as before, I applied another bandage. We waited again, but seconds later, more blood appeared and I applied a third bandage. No sooner was the third bandage applied when more blood appeared and I applied the fourth bandage. Over the next five minutes, I applied more and more bandages. By the time the bleeding had stopped, Azalea had a total of 13 adhesive strips bound to her injured thumb. The wad of bandages was as big as a small lemon. Thank you so much, baby, she said. Now Azalea was ready to work again. I put the box of adhesive strips back into the first aid kit and returned it under the sink. By now, Mr. Horgan was off the phone and started to proofread the day's dinner menu. I waited patiently. A perfect menu, Mr. Horgan said finally. Now, print them off and return them to me. I'll have the servers place them in the folders for our guests. With that, I turned and headed back to the stockroom to print off the menus. As I passed the salad bar, Azalea, with a huge wad of adhesive bandages on her thumb, was mixing ingredients to make the tossed salads. Back at my little printing press... I set about printing the menus. I applied the ink, making sure to get it perfectly uniform across the rollers, then began feeding paper into the tray and turning the crank to print one menu at a time. As I printed the menus, I saw chlorine come waddling back into the stockroom. Upon seeing that the floor area where the pie racks were stored was still not mopped, I knew she would be furious. When she saw the floor had not been mopped, she went straight to Doyle. He was mopping the area at the side of the dishwasher. Doyle, she shouted angrily. Didn't I tell you to mop that floor? Doyle stopped, then placed the mop in the mop bucket and leaned on the handle. Not my job, he replied. There was a tiger-like fury in her face. You listen to me, she said. Get over there and mop that floor or you ain't going to have no manhoods. Doyle shook his head calmly. Then, with an angry scowl, Chlorine closed in. You going to mop that floor? She asked. Not my job, Doyle said. Chlorine moved in closer. Now she was in his face, wagging her finger. Get over there and mop that floor. Not my job, he said, still leaning on the mop handle and watching her finger wag back and forth.
Suddenly, she thrust her hand down the front of Doyle's pants and grabbed his privates in a tight grasp. Instantly, Doyle's face screwed up in a knot of searing pain. For some reason, Doyle didn't raise a hand to stop her. He stoically grasped the mop handle with one hand, then the other, to withstand the pain. It was as if the mop handle was his security blanket, so to speak, and he could handle anything as long as he had that mop handle in hand. I could see the veins in Doyle's hands bulging as he squeezed the mop handle with all his might. Chlorine peered sadistically into his eyes. Oh, Doyle said finally, that hurts. I meant for it to hurt, Chlorine said. Then, from the expression on her face, I could see that she was now applying further, harder pressure. Now, she asked again, are you going to mop that floor? From the grimace on Doyle's face, I could tell he was quickly withering under the pressure. Now he had reached his limit. He could take no more. I'll mop! He screamed suddenly. I'll mop! I'll mop! Chlorine, gritting her teeth in furious anger, squeezed his testicles with more and more pressure. And you going to mop good, right? I'll mop! Doyle screamed again in pain. I'll mop good. He was squeezing the mop handle for dear life. His eyes were bulging as big as saucers with the agonizing pain. That's better, Chlorine said, slowly removing her hand from the front of his pants. Instantly, Doyle set about mopping the floor area where the Pyrax were stored. As he worked, Chlorine watched. Some ten minutes later, the floor under the Pyrax was clean and Chlorine shoved the Pyrax one by one back into the clean space. Then she turned back to Doyle. You got off easy that time, she said. You may not be so lucky next time. Then she turned and started back out of the stockroom when someone suddenly called her name. Chlorine, the voice called. Instantly, both Chlorine and I recognized Mr. Rich's voice. We turned and saw the hotel owner standing at the stockroom entrance. Yes, sir, Chlorine replied. Can you come help me? Yes, sir, she replied. Then she started waddling out of the stockroom behind the hotel owner toward the kitchen floor. Now, I knew that if Mr. Rich had come back to the stockroom looking for Chlorine... There was trouble in the wind somewhere on the kitchen floor. So, once Chlorine started out of the stockroom behind Mr. Rich, I knew I had to investigate. I knew this was going to be big. Really big. Blood on the Salad, John Isaac Jones. I hope you like that. So, that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed hearing from the books I read today, make sure to visit audible.com for more books and short stories that I, as well as many other voice actors, have narrated. Be sure to email me at tomreadsyourstory at yahoo.com to send in your written material for me to perform, or if you have specific questions about getting into the voiceover biz. 
As always, thanks to Anchor.fm for this wonderful chance at having a continuing podcast. I very much appreciate it. Hope you decide to come back soon. Have a great rest of your day and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.